No one could have known how that would have turned out. Just that little thing, being at the right place at the right time and ending up with a career as a health economist, as a public servant, as someone working with the healthcare industry was something that could never, I could never have set out to do that. Mm. But it was the most fortuitous thing that could possibly have happened in terms of my career. And it really set the stage. I mean, it was a springboard for all kinds of opportunities that happened over the next 50 years. So that is one of those small little things. I'm Brian Kramer. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is making smaller shifts. It's the small shifts in our lives that can create epic outcomes. Your journey to be more deeply connected into the life you truly deserve starts right now. So this is kind of neat because I get to sit here with my father-in-law and uh, have a real live conversation with um, Vern Smith. And uh, I hate talking about him like he's third person. So, well, how are you? thank you for joining me and being on my podcast. Oh, well, thank you. You know, this is, uh, this is actually kind of amazing. So I'm happy to be here. Yeah. <laughs> and so I surprised you with the invite to do this. I think it was, was that yesterday already? Yeah. 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 But uh, so... Yeah. Didn't give you a lot of preparation time, and that's okay, because there's no. no preparation. It's just a conversation between yeah. two people, and I'm going to jump right in. Okay, All right. let's go. All right, so um really excited to, to talk to you, and I want, the the life that you have led I, um, is fascinating, and Ooh. a lot of people that you work with get to know you, but I'm excited for all the people that are around in, in Courtney's circle and my circle to get to know you as well, and so... Let's just start by asking, um, what's one, one small thing, or at least it felt small at the time, but it ended up being a big shift for you. Yeah. yeah well, well, you know, I, when I look back at my life or almost anybody's life, um, life was full of small shifts right from the very beginning. Things that seemed as ordinary as a day is long when you began, but, um, when you look back on them, it was like, life changed in an important direction or in an important way as a result of something that happened. So, I, I mean, we could talk all afternoon, which, of course, we don't have time to do here today, but uh, about all of those little things. But everybody's got a story. And um, so some of the things in my life are kind of really unusual. Probably nobody else had this experience. But, you know, just when I think back, my earliest uh, memories are about the time when my father was uh, in graduate school getting his Ph.D. At, at USC. So he lived in Los Angeles. And uh, so I went to kindergarten there. Kindergarten was a great experience. Loved it. My mother was a school teacher. So she, uh, you know, was a teacher at home with her oldest uh, and uh, so went through kindergarten. It was all good. So between that year of kindergarten, when I was four going on five during the school year, um, in the summer after that, my father took a job in Portland, Oregon, teaching in college. And so we moved to Portland, Oregon. First day of school for first grade, we showed up there and they said, what is this child's birthday? And I was born on January 6th. So as it turns out, at least at that time, in California, you could begin school if you turned a certain age by the beginning of the second semester. But in Oregon, it had to be by January 1st. And I was five days, six days too young to go to first grade by Oregon law. My mother objected strenuously. She went down and talked to the principal. She would talk to everybody she could. Uh, she said, this boy is ready to go to first grade. He's all prepared. 
Uh, but uh, notwithstanding my mother's advocacy, which was interesting for a five-year-old to watch, I went back to kindergarten for the second time. So that's been a source of amusement over the years. People have talked about failing kindergarten and so on. Um, and in a certain sense, I guess it's true. But as it turns out, I had two years of kindergarten. And during that year, my mother went down to Powell's Bookstore in Portland and bought all the first grade books. She was going to homeschool me through the first grade while I was in my second year of kindergarten. She, growing up in very rural, out on the plains uh, of uh, western Kansas, uh, had in fact skipped a grade in elementary school. My father also had skipped a grade in elementary school as he was growing up. So in their mindset, their son, obviously in their eyes, prepared to go to school, <coughs> go to first grade, go to, you know, he was ready. They prepared me then, thinking that I then would have a chance to skip a grade. When I got to the first grade the next year in Portland, I was probably on the uh, edge of being an obnoxious child, because every time the teacher asked a question, I raised my hand. Everything that we studied in the first grade, I had already been through. And in that... In that year, this young child, now a six-year-old, developed an image of someone who was a super achiever, somebody who could always know the answer, someone who uh, could be at the head of the class. And that self-image was formed. And that little, I'll call it a shift. I don't know if that's what you meant when you asked about a shift. Mm. But when I look back now about things that were important, and shaping the way my life ultimately turned out. And I've had, you know, I call myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. I've had an amazing life with some amazing life experiences, amazing job experiences. Um, you know, in a certain sense, that year was the sort of thing that kind of set the stage. And uh, that, of course, wasn't the only one, but uh, only kind of thing that helped shape things. But I think how a child develop, develops a self-image is important and can actually shape the way things turn out decades and decades later. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's one way to skip a grade. <laughs> it is. There, there were no grades skipped in my life, uh, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. As, as it turns out, I had to earn them one at a time, uh, like everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, and and your your parents... Um, they, they led a fascinating life. They did. They certainly did. My father, both my father and my mother were high achievers in their own way. Um, uh, uh, my father went on to, you know, earn his PhD at USC and, uh, was, uh, uh it, he wrote, I don't know, eight or ten books. Wow. Highly regarded in his field. He was a theologian and historian. Became the historian of uh, the uh, church uh, that we were part of for uh, you know my, all of my growing up and adult years. Uh, my mother was a school teacher. Uh, she taught in college and at the high school level was ABD. She she never finished her doctoral work, but very very accomplished. And in the um, 25 years that she lived after my father passed away. Uh, she just distinguished herself uh, in so many ways. Uh, you know, the president of her retirement community, the first female president of her Kiwana, of the Kiwanis Club in the area, the uh, just uh, any number of things. She also wrote a number of things. So, uh, had a very good, uh, a couple of very good examples, and I've done. I'm eternally grateful for the example that set by my parents. And you had a lot of travel. Because they traveled a lot uh, as missionaries, is that correct? Uh, well, they did travel as missionaries. They did serve after they retired. They served as missionaries in uh, in Bangkok and in Seoul. Uh, so they were in, and also in the Cayman Islands. And so, so, I mean, they they did that. But that was more of a retirement oh, okay. thing. But travel was an important thing because of the academic calendar. 
in the summers, we traveled. This, I guess, come to think of it, I hadn't thought of this before, but this would be one of those things that also is very influential. Traveling with my parents, I'd been in all the lower 48 states by the time I was 12. Wow. All by car, of course, uh, uh, where we weren't affluent, you know, you have two to uh, teachers as parents you don't you don't have a huge income but we were comfortable but the but summer was always a time for my father to be out on speaking engagements and uh, uh, seminars and conferences and that sort of thing so we traveled all around the country uh, they loved to travel my father was a, a very skilled photographer he had kind of the latest uh, uh, camera equipment of the time. So, uh, we were always stopping at national parks and things like that. So that, and, and we have, um, just a treasure trove of, of slides from the 1940s and 50s <laughs> to look back on as a result of his uh, photography hobby. But, but all of that travel, um, uh, that now I realize how important travel is. To the uh, to a person's education, not just as a child. Um, uh, you know, by the time I graduated from high school, I'd been in several countries, as well as uh, the states and the country. Um, uh, but uh, one of the things that I I've always thought was so important was, as we were raised, my mother and father believed that we we're capable of making our own decisions from a very young age. And if we wanted to try something, we should just go for it. So, you know, I thought during growing up in the 50s, being a rocket scientist was really cool. I, I set off in that direction and um, I have some uh, uh, interesting examples of failed rocket experiments. Uh, thank goodness there was no, you know, live payload on the, <laughs> on the top end of these rockets, which exploded like dynamite sticks. Uh, once I went to the lo to my Encyclopedia Britannica and got the fi uh, formula for how to make gunpowder, um, and uh, discovered that with my chemistry set and with chemicals easily obtainable in those years from the local drugstore, I I made quite a large amount of gunpowder. And the uh, local, you know, I rode my bike across town to the local gun shop, and uh, they, w without asking any questions, sold this, uh, you know, 11-year-old, 12-year-old, uh, a lot of uh, fuse. And uh, with that, I made what I thought was a, would be a rocket. It turned out to be a large stick of dynamite, uh, which fortunately no one was injured when it exploded. Wow. But a large uh, stick it did of raise the, uh, it, it did draw a number of, uh, you know, phone calls from neighbors uh, to the police when that uh, went off, wondering what in the world <laughs> that loud explosion was. But uh, but all of those things helped, you know, it, it was an age of exploration, of uh, experimentation, of learning what you could do, what learning what uh, you were interested in, what you weren't interested in. What, what, roughly what year are we talking about here? Oh, we're talking about in the 50s, mid 50s, late okay. 50s. As I was in high school, middle school and high school years. But, uh, all of that just so interesting. And then you mentioned the travel. Uh, my high school graduation present, we'd gone to a travelogue about Alaska and I said, you know, for a high school graduation present, how about letting me drive to Alaska? So as an 18 year old, my brother and I, who was 16, um, we drove to Alaska on our own for, uh, over two months. And just, uh, uh, you know, camped and fished, went to the World's Fair in Seattle. Just had a wonderful time. Um, uh, you know, the kind of things where if your parents trust you to do that, you can. When we were 15, we wanted to do some things. We, uh, we laid out um, a 600-mile bicycle trip, uh, riding from central Indiana up to a state park along the Lake Michigan coast. And, um, uh, you know, gone on our own, this is before cell phones, before the ability to check in. As 15-year-olds, our parents trusted us to get on those bikes and ride and be gone, uh, trusting that we'd be back with some stories to tell uh, after eight days. So, that, you know, those days, that, that, it was a different era to be growing up, but developed a sense of... Uh, adventure. Of adventure, resilience, 
And by the time I was 19, I had traveled on my own to 33 countries. Wow. And uh, 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 spent the summer after my freshman year in college uh, traveling uh, Europe, Eastern Europe, Middle East, and Northern Africa, and uh, gone for 91 days. So uh, that's that's the kind of uh, thing that kind of sets the stage. You, you must have been in some situations maybe or a situation that came up for you when you look back at all of that that uh maybe uh or or even uh a point where you look back and you and it informed the rest of your life um how do you now look at all of that and yeah. and, and think about it well you know all of those experiences build on themselves and so you do one thing it gives you confidence to do another and uh, when when we set off to go to Europe as um, may as a 19 year old on our own, there wasn't one moment that I didn't feel completely confident. I'm sure I was more confident than my parents were, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I was completely confident that this would be a very good experience, and it was. And uh, we didn't ha- we encountered uh, you know a variety of. Interesting uh, experiences. Uh, you know, this was when the Berlin Wall was up. We wanted to go to East Germany. We found a way to do that. We went through Checkpoint Charlie, and um, uh, uh, you know the uh, uh, the East German and Russian uh, soldiers and going through our car. They found, <laughs> uh, it's interesting a uh, story. Our, our I, I don't know if you have time for this kind of, of a story or not, but yeah. you know, going through checkpoint short, the, the, my college buddy that we were with, his parents were not quite as confident as I was about all of this, and they wanted to make sure that their son didn't starve. So on our way to JFK, they drove us to the airport. They stopped at a store and bought 10 cans of Spam and uh, stuffed them in our suitcases. Well, 10 cans of Spam, this is before suitcases had wheels. That's a heavy thing to carry around. So the first thing we did when we got to Europe, and we had purchased a car for European delivery, Volkswagen Bug. So we took that Spam and we tucked in every nook and cranny under the seat in the engine compartment and uh you know in the the bonnet the the hood uh since the engine was in the back uh and behind the spare tire everything we put 10 cans of spam and then forgot about it and now when we're driving it through checkpoint charlie the russians the soldiers uh inspecting the car found all 10 cans of spam oh no. they were not happy about this at all and a um, Russian or German, East German uh, soldier came over to me as we were waiting. They'd already taken our passports away and so on. And we were waiting here underneath uh, signs that say no photography, no photography. I have some great pictures of those signs. <laughs> and um, and uh, he's carrying 10 cans of spam and he comes over. And I had three years of German, although, you know, conversational German wasn't, uh, I, I hadn't really gotten to a place where I could be conversant in German after three years of studying it in high school and college. But, um, you know, he told me to eat it now in German. He directed me to eat it right then. And uh, we had brought a a, a British fellow, an Oxford student that we had, who had had 14 years of German, and he was in East Berlin or West Berlin to polish up his conversational German and uh, he came with us he was a great guy and uh, six foot six crammed under that little Volkswagen bug and uh, so he then began arguing and so then Tony was his name Tony said to me Vern he wants you to number one to eat it or to take it right now and I said, well, can I take it back to the American checkpoint, which is about 100 yards away? He said, okay. So then he loaded me up with 10 cans of Spam in my arms, and I walked back to the American checkpoint and said to the GI there, you know, any chance we can leave this here till we come back? <laughs> and he said, well, I won't be here when you come back, but you can leave it here. And uh, we did, and uh, we picked it up on the way out of East Germany. Oh, wow. But so you never, it's still there when you left. It is, it is, but... Um, uh, that was a time, very sobering, uh, time to be there at the Berlin Wall. And, uh, there were fresh 
memorials of people who had, uh, uh, you know, lost their lives seeking to escape uh, in one way or another uh, over the wall. And uh, so it was very sobering to see that. It really made you appreciate what we had in, in this country. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Yeah. That, yeah. that I will I will never think of spam ever the same way again. Uh, yeah. That was a but that was a you know you, you you've had a you've had a, all these you've had all these great experiences and every experience there's all these little micro stories uh, how true. That, that you have and um yeah. and and they like you said I love how each experience informs the next experience um and and. Was this, this was before you went into college, correct? Like, the, it was right? after my freshman year, between the freshman and sophomore year. So, and you went yeah. to college where? At Anderson University in Anderson, Indiana. Yeah. Okay. And you were in economics? In economics, turned out to be. I, we've, we said to our kids, uh, uh, you know, it's important to go to college and uh, we have a few rules. One of which is you can change your major five times. That's how many your father had. So, yeah, I started off as a chemistry major, and before it was all said and done, I was a business and economics major with a <laughs> minor in history. <laughs> oh, I, I didn't know it was five times. Wow. Yeah, yeah, five and then, times. And yeah. uh, economics, um, obviously, is what what uh, took you through yeah. the rest of your career. But before you got there... Um, Take me through what, um, where you went from there. You did, you went through college and, and studied economics and then what? Well, you know, this is, uh, there's an interesting little turning point here as well. And, uh, uh, so I, uh, got a degree in economics and I was a good economics student. I got, uh, you know, uh, uh, got some awards and so on when I graduated for that. But the, um, but then went to Michigan State to graduate school. And uh, was a graduate assistant the first year, and in the second year, I needed a job to uh, uh, continue. To, those were the days when people actually worked their way through college. So uh, uh, Paula and I were married at the time, and uh, by then, and for a year, and we needed. I needed a job to uh, 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 pay our way through college. So. Uh, as the, there's, there's an interesting thing here that happened. So the economics department said, well, there, there are jobs available at General Motors. There are three General Motors plants and, uh, not far from East Lansing, uh, in, in Lansing and, uh, Oldsmobile, that was headquarters for Oldsmobile. They said Oldsmobile is hiring people. They're going to hire 75 people next week. And uh, they have some of those positions that are job share. So you could work 20 hours and somebody else would work the other 20 hours of one job. And you work it out however you want to, based on your mutual schedules. So I went down and applied. Uh, there were about three or 400 people who applied for those jobs. I was given a job. I met my job share partner. And then and, and General Motors had given me the most thorough physical I had ever gotten. I'd been through millions, well, not millions, but dozens of sports physicals. And I'd never had um, an exam as thorough as this one. And uh, we were all set. And they just said, you know, as soon as we get the results back from the doctor, you'll be all set. And then I heard my name and, I, and they called me over and the doctor said, we have to take some more x-rays. Turns out I had a scoliosis of my back brought on by the fact that I'd been a paper boy for seven years carrying a newspaper bag over one arm. And, and so one shoulder was slightly lower than the other because of that. And I had a slight curvature of my spine. And the doctor said, General Motors cannot hire you because... You have a scoliosis in your back and you're too big of a risk. And 10, 15, 20, 25 years from now, you're going to have back problems and GM can't afford to take a chance on you. So I was medically underwritten out of a job with General Motors. So I went in the next morning to the economics department and I said, you know, that didn't work out. So here's an interesting thing. They said, we just got a call from the governor's office and they're looking for someone to write sections of the governor's economic report. I went down and interviewed for that job and was hired into the governor's office in the state of Michigan. George Romney, Mitt Romney's dad, was governor of Michigan oh. at the time. And so I went in on my first day, and the state budget director came by my cubicle, and we had a very nice conversation. I thought he was just welcoming me, and then it turned out he was actually interviewing me. He said, Vern, there's a brand-new program 
were just implementing in Michigan called Medicaid. And we need someone to handle the budget for Medicaid. And I think you could do it. And I said, I'm sure I could. What did I know? You know, I was just a 23-year-old graduate student. But I said, sure. And that moment changed my life. Wow. Changed my life. Twenty-some years later, I was Medicaid director for the state of Michigan. That never would have happened. But because I started my career in the governor's office, got to know the budget process, handled the budget for what became the largest program in Michigan's budget, Medicaid. It's actually the largest program in every state budget these days uh, is Medicaid. And um, so I became a health economist as a public servant instead of becoming an economist teaching in college, which is what I had thought I would do. So that is one of those little things. When I came home from work on that first day and told Paula that, you know, this looks really interesting and I'm going to be doing this, no one could have known how that would have turned out. Just that little thing, being at the right place at the right time and ending up with a career as a health economist, as a public servant, as someone working with the healthcare industry was something that could never, I could never have set out to do that. Mm. But it was the most fortuitous thing that could possibly have happened in terms of my career. And it really set the stage. I mean, it was a springboard for all kinds of opportunities that happened over the next 50 years. So that is one of those small little things. And again, everyone has some time in their life when something like that happens. Mm. And for me, that was probably the most significant of those little shifts, those little things that happened to you. And you had finished uh, graduate school and also got, got your Ph.D. in addition to that, correct? Well, I got, I got my right. Ph.D., you know, while I was working for the uh, state of Michigan oh, okay. as, in the governor's office. So, I mean, it all worked out very well in that regard. And, uh, you know, even when you're doing what I was doing, you know, there's no, you know, there's not a path that says you're going to be promoted in this particular way and you end up in a Medicaid director. It turned out that the person who hired me into the governor's office 20-some years later was the person who was in charge of selecting the Medicaid director. And I'd already worked for him. And when you're in a position of uh, at that level, the most important um, job qualification that you can have is the trust of the people that you're working for. And if you have the trust of the, uh, in this case, the governor and the department heads and that sort of thing, then that is it, the rest of your background and qualifications don't matter that much. You need to be tr uh, uh, trusted. And um, and so we had worked together for many, many years. And so that was uh, kind of, a, I think, the thing that kind of uh, uh, was a tipping point or, or the, the, the straw that helped um, uh, weigh things. So there were some excellent candidates for the Medicaid director's job when I was applying, and I was very fortunate to be mm -hmm. the one to be selected at the time. What year were you selected? So that was in 1990, 91, and uh, so then I served as Medicaid director for a little over five years, which, uh, you know, in Medicaid director years, that's a long time. The average tenure of a Medicaid director is about two years. It's it's a pretty, um, you know, it's a job that stresses a lot of people out. Oh, really? I loved it. I loved it. We had fabulous people to work with, uh, fabulous staff, and... And honestly, uh, if I can say this, uh, kind of throwing all modesty to the wind for a second, I think we had one of the very best Medicaid programs in the country. Medicaid, uh, sometimes people compare Medicare and Medicaid. Medicare is a federal program. Medicaid, every state has its own, like Medi-Cal in California, for example. Uh, and uh, it, it's it's a very significant, very important program. Almost a quarter of Americans are uh, have Medicaid as a health coverage right now. 40% of all children, Medicaid pays for half the uh, births 
in, in the in the country these days. It's a really significant program, and uh, it, it was a great privilege to be working mm. with that program over uh, the last uh, five decades. And you said stressful. Yeah. Um, most don't. It's a two-year or uh, on average, and, and yeah. the word I locked in on was stressful. And yeah. also, you said budget. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, and, and managing budget and yeah. looking at the stressful part of the job. Um, mm. but you really enjoyed it. Uh, I did. What made it enjoyable for you that was, um, like even just when you look back at just that time in the government side of your, your work, cause there was other stuff that came later. Yeah. What made it all enjoyable for you? Well, what made it enjoyable was that you knew you were making a difference on something that was really important to people. You know, uh, sometimes we'd have a public meeting or something, and uh, I remember one in particular, a, a mother was there, and she was talking about the program, and she said, this program is so important to me and the health care of my child that I will do anything. I will quit my job. I will get a job. I will do whatever it takes so that my child can have this health coverage. You know, when people have, um, uh, you know, those of us who are blessed with good health sometimes don't appreciate how important health coverage is for those that have chronic conditions or um, or specific medical conditions uh, at uh, various times in their lives. And uh, health care is so expensive, uh, that can be a stress as well. But to be running a program that made that difference in person's lives. It was very rewarding in that regard. Now, I also enjoyed the process, of course, because it's a public program. So you have to be a, a, a prudent administrator. You're talking about so many public dollars, tax dollars. Um, uh, when I mean, in Michigan, talking about a program that is $15 billion or something per year now. Wow. And you're processing on the cl all the claims. You're working with every aspect of the healthcare community. The, you know, the hospitals, the doctors, the pharmacists, nursing homes, uh, every aspect of the of the healthcare community. And so there are all of the kind of medical politics you have to deal with. But then there's the politics because the legislature has to authorize the spending. So I appeared before legislative committees, budget committees, appropriations committees for 25 consecutive years during that stretch. And I can honestly say, looking back, that I never had one bad experience. Really? Testifying before or appearing before uh, a legislative committee. I also appeared before committees of Congress on Medicaid issues. And uh, those were all very positive experiences as well. So uh, to be part of the process and to help the program become better. And, uh, you know, we always talked about we have to continuously focus on improving the program because the world is changing so fast. The healthcare world is changing so fast. You have to continuously adapt and make sure you're doing things as efficiently and effectively as possible. And that was our goal. That was our kind of our mantra of making Medicaid better. And, uh, you know, just the challenge of doing that and doing it with a team of people who were all on board working on the, you know, rowing in the same direction. It, it all was very, very satisfying. Mm -hmm. Just terrific people, very important program, making a difference in the lives of, of the, the children, you know, since such a large portion of children have Medicaid as their health coverage or Medi-Cal as their health coverage up here in California. Just, uh, I mean, it's just very, very important, and that's rewarding. I remember, I think it might have been the first time that I met you, huh? uh, at least that's what I make up in my head, huh? that um, we were sitting at dinner, and you had mentioned that you just got back from Washington, D.C., which was yeah. probably one of many, many, many trips. And, yeah. uh, I didn't realize that wh why you had gone there. I just yeah. thought you were, and I asked wh where you had been and yeah. you said, yeah, I was at the congressional building and I said, oh man, that yeah. building is just amazing. Did you, mm -hmm. did you get to, uh, you know, go in yeah. or see like what them actually get like you know get the tour or what went on and you said no actually i was speaking that yeah. day and <laughs> right. and uh i was 
blown away. Um, yeah. and, and I've always wanted, now I get to actually, while we're on, uh, a microphone now, I, I'd love to know what is that like, um, to be there and, and what's that like? Well, I, at a certain level, it's just another day in the life of someone who's in the Medicaid world. Yeah. Uh, because you're there for a specific reason. Um, you have some expertise and, and uh, some information to impart. So it's not stressful because you're just naturally prepared because that's what you do every day is working in this, in this world. So, um, uh, if the subject is, uh, child health, a number of the things, a number of times I was there speaking on the, um, healthcare policy aspects of Medicaid as they relate to children. I chaired the Federal Advisory Committee on Child Health for 14 years, actually, during one stretch. And so, you know, that took me to D.C. for those reasons. But, uh, you know, I've always found <laughs> today is an exception to the rule I'm about to tell you, but I always felt that the goal is always to be extemporaneous when you're speaking, to convey what you're trying to say. But then... I would always, you know, the, the, the rest of that is it takes a lot of preparation to be extemporaneous. Mm. Our conversation today, I guess all the prepara preparation is what's happened over the last several decades, but, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> there, there's no preparation for today. It's all extemporaneous. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so going back to, yeah. uh, then your, remainder of the, your work in, yeah. in the government, you then yeah. retired from that work yeah. and then moved on to, uh, the private work. Yes. And, uh, yeah. and, and that was kind of, kind of cool. Cause then you got to yeah. see the other side of things. Yeah. I loved, uh, after I retired, uh, as a public servant, I loved the fact that I was able to continue my work in Medicaid as a consultant with Health Management Associates. So that was... Uh, and that was I a new that. business that just started? It was relatively new. It, it was Michigan-focused at the time, and I my role was to help make, uh, you know, create a national presence for it. And um, it, it wasn't all my doing, of course. Uh, Jay Rosen, the president, was, it was phenomenal. And he has taken the business so that now I think there's something... Like 25 offices around the country. Wow. Uh, 350 or so employees. Uh, it's an awesome company and the, and the folks there are phenomenal, uh, colleagues. So, um, uh, so the company has developed, uh, but the key thing about working as a healthcare consultant with HMA and with Jay Rosen is that, uh, you know, Jay said to me when we were talking about my joining the firm, um, he said, you know, if you come to work for HMA, you'll never again have to do anything you don't want to do. Because the company is really formed around a principle that people can do exactly what they enjoy doing, what they're good at doing. And when they do that, it's very self-satisfying for the individual, but it's also beneficial for the company as a whole. And that's the way, that has been the secret sauce of uh, HMA's success uh, since it was founded back in uh, the mid-1980s. So, um, you know, when I joined it, it was already a 12 or 15-year-old uh, company. Oh, okay. And it um, uh, has developed phenomenally, and I treasure the friendships and relationships that I was able to have over that period of time. And, you know, working with state governments, in some of the most interesting ways in some of the most interesting states. I, I, I mean, we sometimes talk about the times we were working in the state of Alaska and literally flying tiny little airplanes out uh, to the small villages on the Yukon-Kuskokwim Delta region out on the Bering Sea and doing focus groups, believe it or not, focus groups and interviews with people, with interpreters, because the uh, Native Alaskans, uh, you know, couldn't speak English, about their healthcare experience and how Medicaid had a role in improving that healthcare experience. I mean, I mean, some uh, and and 
uh, to get people to come to these meetings, this is just kind of a fun fact or fun bit of information. So to get people to come, we offered bags of oranges and a raffle ticket for a 55-gallon drum of heating oil. <laughs> <laughs> and so we didn't have any trouble getting people to come to come to our meetings, and we had some amazing experience. That was a very successful and memorable um, part of that. But working with all kinds of states, working with the federal government, working with health plans and hospital systems, and uh, speaking at national meetings for the AMA and the American Hospital Association and many other national health policy meetings, so very rewarding mm. uh, to be kind of on the cutting edge and help states and, and uh, uh, become more effective in what they're doing, help health plans be more effective as they contracted with states and that sort of thing. Very, very satisfying. I know one of my favorite yeah. projects, at least uh, for, for yeah. my pro favorite yeah. project for you, yeah. was watching you work on the National Governor's uh, Annual Report. Uh, oh, yeah. that you would yeah. give, and I, I think that would be both stressful and fun at the same time. Well, I, I had the privilege of doing work for the Kaiser Family Foundation, and, and uh, we did an, an what we call a Medicaid budget survey report. And uh, in my time with Medicaid, I developed, you know, personal relationships, uh, knowing uh, the, all the Medicaid directors across the country. And uh, so we started tracking what the trends were, the budget trends, the policy trends, the enrollment trends, uh, spending trends, and so on. Uh, what was it that, what were the most important issues in Medicaid year by year, state by state? And uh, the Kaiser Family Foundation uh, uh, sponsored that project. I had the privilege for 16 consecutive years of interviewing every single Medicaid director in every state. Um, um, and from those interviews and the, and the structured interview, um, uh, document that we had, uh, created a report. That, of course, resulted, when that came out, that was, that was important enough news that it usually showed up in the New York Times and the Wall wow. Street Journal. So, so, and, and interviews, uh, you know, with NPR or whatever. So those were, that was a very rewarding mm. kind of, second career after having been an actor in the Medicaid world um, to go on and being an observer um, and chronicler of, yeah. of how changes were taking place. But one thing, I mean, one of the things that made that interesting is that uh, we talk about the world changing at a rapid pace and and when as tech technology comes along and new developments in the in the healthcare world and new opportunities provided by Congress or or by actions of states there is just a constant new uh, there there uh, the program is renewing itself almost on an annual basis as new things come along and states uh, you know new legislators come in they have ideas they uh, champion certain approaches and then you have a chance to work with them as they um, implement it. So we have a system in this country now where every Medicaid program across the country is different because it's the program that the state has chosen for itself. And then states learn from each other. They see one state has done something and another state sees that and then leapfrogs beyond that state and does something even more effective or, or better or different. And uh, sometimes you can do the same thing in a different way. So you have states doing things. Uh, you know, there's the expression, uh, states are the laboratories of democracy. In this case, I think states are the laboratories of innovation. And uh, there's no place where that's more true than in state Medicaid programs. So here's something that uh, when I look back on things that kind of influence the way I look at life and what I find to be important and satisfying, uh, I remember um, I stepped into my father's office one time. Uh, at the time, he was assistant dean of a school of theology, a seminary. His students were all studying to be ministers. And I walked in, there was a little plaque in his office, and it said, live your life for something that will outlive you. And I thought, whoa, that is really significant. I really like that. And um, so I pointed at it and I, I said to my father, that, I like that. I like that. And he just shook his head and nodded. 
And I could tell that was something that was important in his life. And I remember that. It wasn't like he gave, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, that he waxed eloquent describing that or going on uh, to elaborate on it. He just acknowledged it, you know, like, yeah, that's important. And uh, that was it. But I remember that. I've remembered that my entire life. That was, you know, a good 60 years ago. And um, uh, I've remembered that, and I've found it to be so true that when the, the most satisfying things in life, the most important things in life, are when you have a purpose, and, um, you know, I, I mean, what it is that you live your life for that's going to outlive you, that can be a lot of things, you know? Uh, it can be something that you accomplish, uh, like a book or something, but it also can be the impact that you have on somebody else's life, a child, your own child, or another person. And, or, uh, you know, I always felt, in my case, working in healthcare, that developing these programs and, and uh, uh, developing policies that would expand access and coverage were important ways uh, to live your life as well. But, uh, you know... Live your life for something that will outlive you. How mm. important. So that's, that's one of those little things, just a little moment. Uh, I, I doubt my father saw it nearly as significant as it turned out to be in my life. Mm. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. 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 Very significant. Mm. So. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. What, 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 um, what would you, uh, what would you love to leave behind? Well, uh, you know, um, uh, <laughs> well, you know, you, you talk about those things that are important to you that have been important in your life. And, and hopefully there are some of those things that are, that are important. Some of the things that are accomplished in your work life uh, that are important enough that, you know, you've lived your life for that. And uh, uh, it's nice to have a sense of accomplishment that the purpose that you lived your life for was an important one. Uh, and I feel very fortunate to have had that feeling in my own life. Um, but, you know, uh, I look at, I look at our kids as well and they've, turned out so well and it's very gratifying to see that i know that i can take actually very little credit they've you know what they do they've done on their own uh, but um but uh, nevertheless it's very satisfying to see to see that and uh, you know some of this rubs off in some small way on the grandchildren or other people we've come in contact with that'd be great mm. yeah Live your life for something that will outlive you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm. Mm. So, I think that's it. Yeah, I can't improve on that. What we actually haven't talked about is the other side of your life, with which is your family, because oh, yeah. you've, yeah. Uh, during all of this time, raised yeah. three kids with Paula. One of them being my wife. So th yeah. thank you. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and you, you made time for, uh, your kids, your, your incredible father. Um, and, you know, always made time to go to Colorado and on trips and Europe mm -hmm. and, and all of these things. And mm -hmm. I think that was part of what you always uh, and I know your kids would say this focused yeah. on, uh, yeah. growing up that family was important to you. Well, I appreciate you saying that because family always is important. Sometimes we get really, uh, you know, immersed in what we do for a living and, and, um, uh, uh, sometimes you have to bring yourself back and, uh, you know, to how important family is. But let me just say this. You're one of the luckiest men on the face of the earth to be married to my daughter. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, I am. so, uh, uh, yeah, I know you appreciate that. Um, but, you know, we have three amazing children, including, you know, Courtney. And, 
uh, and Kathy and Steve, just mm-hmm. to mention them by name. Um, but, um, uh, oh, I mean, there's so many memories that are just flashing through my yeah. mind as, as you say that. But, yeah, very, very fortunate. So tell me, how, how did you actually meet Paula, your wife? Oh, boy. Well, you know, when you talk about little shifts or accidental things that, that happen, uh, and again, um, accidental I'm, in a good way. I, I, accidental in a very, very good way, actually. So I, I, I think we mentioned that, uh, I was at Anderson University. Uh, Paula actually went her first year of college at Warner Pacific, uh, uh, college in Portland, Oregon. And in August, she and I were at a, um, a church youth convention in Louisville, Kentucky. I didn't know her, and she didn't know me, but her pastor in Kansas City had said, you know, there's a, there's a young man, I'll just call him Jim, but, I mean, that's his first name, and, uh, uh, you know, you might want to meet him. He was a ministerial student at Anderson University School of Theology Graduate School, and um, so, um, uh, so Paula met him, and they had a hamburger and coke together, something like that. And uh, you know, I guess it was a pleasant experience. I was there as a, a part of the leadership of this convention. There were probably four thousand uh, kids there from various churches around the country. And, um, so anyway, after that, he said to her, listen, why don't you transfer to Anderson University in Anderson, Indiana, instead of going to school in Portland, Oregon? Now, Paula was a natural leader. She had already been elected secretary of the student body at Warner Pacific. So she was well known. She was a personality, well liked. And, um, so leaving Warner Pacific to come to Anderson University was actually quite a stretch for her. But she decided to do it. Who knows how this might turn out? And so Jim and Paula dated for about a year. And then after a year, they decided to take some time, I guess they, couple times during the year, they had decided to kind of go their separate ways, and they got back together, and then they went through their separate ways. And uh, so while they were not doing it, they were not dating each other, I, Paul and I happened to have a class together, and um, so I asked her out, and uh, we had a good time, and... Uh, then I asked somebody else out, somebody else out. I, I had no steady girlfriend or anything like that. I was a senior in college. And um, then uh, uh, over uh, Christmas break, we corresponded and that sort of thing. And uh, then I kind of thought, you know, of all the women that I have dated, Paula is amazing. I mean, obviously, she's beautiful, engaging, and... Um, uh, unbelievable sense of humor, a good athlete, and uh, just uh, seemed to, you know, check all the boxes that I was interested in. And so, um, uh, you know, we became more serious, and uh, then we decided to get married in the spring, and we were married uh, in the August, in August uh, later that summer. So that was all good. That all worked out. But when I think back, if Jim hadn't asked her to transfer, I would never have known her. And if she hadn't transferred, then, um, uh, I mean, if I hadn't met her, if, if things hadn't worked out in this particular way, just think how the whole world would have been different, mm-hmm. you know, and, I mean, in terms of us, in terms of you, and so on. And uh, I've... I've said several times, I think I owe Jim a whole lot of credit for the way my life is turned <laughs> So, <laughs> Well, tonight we're going to toast Jim. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all in on that. Right, right, right. So anyway, it's all turned out. And I again, this is just another way in which I've 
one of the luckiest persons on the face of the earth to have been married for uh, 55 years to Paula. 55 years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a, that is a, uh, that is a good, uh, that is a good amount of time to, uh, be with somebody who is your yeah. best friend and partner and, yeah. and, uh, yeah. yeah. So I, I think most of us can kind of say, well, if this happened, hadn't happened, then that wouldn't have happened. And if that first thing hadn't happened, I mean, if something before that hadn't happened, then that wouldn't have happened. And then you can just keep going back and back and back, and you can come up with maybe something a few dozen stages long of if that little thing hadn't happened, then the next thing wouldn't have happened. If right. that hadn't happened, the next thing wouldn't have happened all the way, all the way through your life. Well, you you have that uh, that kind of gene in you for not just in your relationships and not just in in your job or your work but yeah. also you have a knack for getting into things that like into uh nh nhl like ice hockey yeah. uh mass like the um the uh uh championship game yeah. And, oh. and on TV, <laughs> yeah. right behind the trophy, right? Yeah. Oh, well, that's just another one of those accidental things that happened, you know. Uh, if the business meeting hadn't gotten over early, I wouldn't have been at the arena for the uh, what turned out to be the last game of the Stanley Cup in that year. And uh, so the Washington Capitals were playing the Red Wings. I was interested in that hockey game. It was game four, turns out. Red Wings won the game and, and won the Stanley Cup, but... But, um, uh, you know, I went to the arena with no ticket. The Capitals, uh, you know, didn't do well at all. Some disgusted fans were walking out. One of them gave me his ticket. Turned out to be center ice. And when they brought out the Stanley Cup, immediately my uh, email and phone lit up with, I saw you on national TV. <laughs> I saw you on national TV. <laughs> From your kids and your family. Our Friends. son was at a bar in East Lansing watching the Stanley Cup playoffs, and he ran to a payphone, this was before cell phones, before he had a cell phone, and uh, called Paula and said, Dad's on TV, Dad's on TV. Yeah, funny things like that. Yeah. Crazy things. Yeah. Just crazy things. Happen. Yeah. But, but um, yeah, it's all good. How fun. <laughs> it's well, all good. You never know what's going to happen. You never know. And chances are it's going to be good. Now you're retired. I am retired. Yes. And um, and and so uh, how how are you enjoying retirement? And and um, and how was that transition? And how is that transition for you? Well, you know, um, for some of us who are have been immersed in our work, it's sometimes hard to step away. And so. I still, you know, kind of try to stay connected. I've become a volunteer on some committees with AERP that focus on healthcare. And, um, uh, you know, there's still plenty of ways to give back, even uh, when it's not for a paying job. And I think that's all very important if, uh, you know, it's, um, it, it, it's a satisfying part of a, of a person's life to continue giving back in certain ways. Um, yeah, Paul and I've, find ways to uh, uh, try to volunteer church or, uh, you know, in this way with ARP or whatever yeah. there may be. But uh, it's nice to ha have the chance to um, travel and visit again after this uh, historic year of the pandemic. Um, so here we are having a chance to have a conversation in person, Yeah. whereas for the last uh, year and a half, it's only been over Zoom. Yeah. Well, except for the pandemic, I know we, you guys keep a, a Google calendar and we have to track you guys to know where you are because you're always <laughs> somewhere. And so mm. even in retirement, I think you're as busy or uh, busier than ever visiting all your grandkids and your kids and your, and, and, uh, and doing lots of things. So, um, you know, uh, congrats and, and, um, uh, and, uh, you know, way to, way to live a, a great life. Well, thank you. It helps to be lucky. Mm. And I feel very, very fortunate, very, very lucky. I mean, anybody who's had two holes in one and is not wow. a good golfer, 
I'm not a good golfer, but, <laughs> well, I've seen but play. you know, um, um, I love to play the game. So it is, um, it, it is fun. Sometimes, you know, that probably, you know, should be on my resume. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, thanks again for doing this with me. And, um, I can't wait for everybody else to hear it. Oh, well, this has been fun. Thank you for taking the time to do it. It's yeah. very flattering to have somebody you don't want to ask questions about your life. Yeah. So thank you. Well, it's, it's, it's in stone now. So, um, can't wait to get it out. All right. <laughs> yeah. It's great. Thanks. Cheers. Thank you so much for joining us this week. If you love this episode, please subscribe. We love having subscribers just like you. Download a few more episodes. And if you feel moved, we would so appreciate a review. I'd love to also hear your key takeaway. What impacted you from this episode? You can tweet me your answer and reach out on Twitter at Brian Kramer. That's Brian with a Y, Kramer with a K. And definitely be sure to join us in our Facebook group. We have just under 3,000 humans just like you and me looking to connect even more imperfectly. Until next time.